Passion's awesome, but uh, you actually have to have talent too in order to do that. But I appreciate you pouring your passion into our church. And uh, like I said, today we're going to talk about passion. Passion's uh, probably the reason why I'm in ministry is because of the infusion of passion from people that I looked up to that stepped up in front of me and shared God's word in a way that when I was a kid, I just was like, I resonate with that. I relate to that. That's funny, that moves me. And so passion is contagious and infectious. Wouldn't you agree? It's it's a huge part of our world. You can have salvation, but if you don't have passion, people aren't drawn to whatever the salvation is. And a lot of times we just sort of find ourselves resigned, like at least I'm saving them going to heaven someday. And God's like, I want passion to come down and for glory to fill your soul so that people can actually feel the difference that the life of Christ makes when he inhabits our heart. And uh, passion, my daughters reminded me last night after I was done speaking, I said, isn't it interesting, Dad, that your password to get into your computer is passion? So if you ever see my computer and you want to get into my computer, the password's passion, and it has been since 1998 (laughs) on my desktop. And I love passion. Passion, when I was younger, I went to passion conferences with Louis Giglio, went down, joined 100,000 people for passion one day. I just loved passion. It had an indelible impression on my life. And I have a lot of passions, as you probably do as well. I love the woods. How many love nature, love getting out into the woods? Yeah, I love the woods. I love rivers, I love streams, I love brooks, I love waterfalls. If I can get by a waterfall and just hear that sound or the rippling brook, that's like serenity to me, that's peace to me, that's filling to me. Uh, I love my tractor, I love gathering wood. My tractor that I have is an 8N Ford tractor. My grandpa had it in 1940s, gave it to my dad, and then it was bequeathed to me. I love that tractor. I got the old manure spreader from my grandpa as well to collect wood. I love massages. How many here love to get a massage? If I could get several a week, if I was independently wealthy, I would have a masseuse that actually worked at Impact to give our staff (laughs) massages every day. Shay, would you be into that? Yeah, I love massages. I love horses. I've never owned a horse, but I love the smell of horse manure. I love the smell of horse sweat. I love the sound of horses running. I love the sound of horses chewing hay with my ear right up to their jaw. I love horses. Um, I love wrestling. I never wrestled, but I love watching wrestling. I love being in a town where we have awesome wrestling with RJ Boudreau. And uh, yeah. It's a good golf clap there for R.J. Boudreaux and the Lowell wrestling team. We got wrestlers in our church that are on the team. I love watching online. I've watched every wrestling match, I think, national championships and international wrestling. Jordan Burroughs, my favorite wrestler. I love watching that on YouTube. Um, I, love, uh, I love the show The Antique Roadshow. Anybody like the Antique Roadshow? Like, I, I'm, <laughs> thank you again uh, for that golf clap. You and I must, who's clapping out there? What's your name? You're pointing at each other. Were you both clapping? What's that? Pam. Pam. Pam, you and I, Antique Roadshow. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the one you blow by every time you see it because it's so boring and monotonous and uh, the guy's droning on. I can't wait to see what this object that looks like it's not worth anything is actually worth. And it's like, well, this little piece of wood that looks like a spoon is $400,000. Like, what? This is awesome. I got to see the next one. Love the Antique Roadshow. In fact, Uh, Last week, found a new passion. There's a new show out called Love on the Spectrum. And it follows people with, anybody know what I'm talking about, Love on the Spectrum? It follows people that are on the spectrum of autism and uh, they're dating other people with autism. It's so powerful. Love on the Spectrum, write it down. I love uh, Shark Tank. I love watching Shark Tank. Probably the same reason I like watching uh, Antique Roadshow. Um, I love stories. I love Lord of the Rings. I love fantasy stories. Um, I love movie. I love going to the movies. How many people love going to the movies? I'm passionate about storylines and movies. And um, 
and uh, good screenplays. I'm passionate about my family. I love my girls with all my heart. I love my boys with part of my heart. Um, They're not old enough yet for me to feel like there's reciprocal relationship, but I I do love them. I would die for my my family and I love my wife. She's the love of my life. We just celebrated our 24th anniversary. And I can't believe we made it, especially after the first few years where we collided with our our backgrounds and I was trying to change her into who I wanted her to be and she was returning the favor. It was pretty, it was pretty bloody. How many people know the blood sport of early marriage? Yeah, she's the passion of my life and um, it was interesting. As I was thinking about this message and passion, I thought about her in the early days of our relationship where that infatuation was there and I saw her from across the campus my freshman year and I'd never seen a girl so beautiful in all my life. In fact, I graduated with two other guys in my class. I didn't have any girls in my senior class, so I was starved um, in our little Christian school. Um, And the girls that did come, they were uh, Neanderthals. And um, so I was really, really interested, like, wow, girls like that exist and they love the Lord. She had a nautica jacket on and her hair was was blonde and curly and she had big bows in her hair and she um, was put together quite nicely. (laughs) And we started dating and spent so much time together. In fact, every waking moment, she was in all my classes. Uh, We went to dinner together, lunch together, we studied together. I mean, this girl had my whole heart. I was infatuated. And I never wrote love notes or poems and she like inspired that in me. I started writing them. We were reading them last night. She has a whole folder of all the notes that she wrote me and I wrote her. And it was goofy, stupid stuff that we wrote to each other. Like you look back and you're like, love is blind, but love is dumb as well. And the dumb stuff we said that just came out of our hearts for each other was crazy. I remember like, In the early days, just I couldn't wait to give her a kiss, right? And so we were we were out and we were in a traffic jam heading to my house and it was standstill traffic and I just turned over and leaned over the console and started smooching on her. And once I started smooching, my brain forgot where we were in standstill traffic and I let my foot off the brake and ran into the bumper of the person ahead of me. And, um, and I had braces at the time throughout college and I totally cut my wife's lip and so she was bleeding and the guy in front of me is like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm kissing, what are you doing out here? I'm driving is what I'm doing in the middle of the highway. And so these things, like I thought back like, ah, this is so crazy what love can do to you. When I got engaged to her, it was at homecoming and I played soccer, it was halftime of the soccer games, 1400 people there, parents had come out for parents weekend and uh, Uh, So I went and got her from the crowd and brought her out and had a dozen flowers and a teddy bear and a ring and guys reading a love note over the loudspeaker, which was weird. My best friend's reading my voice. I love you, Heidi. And it was Dan Dundor saying it and really, really weird. And then I don't know what got into me because I didn't even plan this. But while I was on my knee, I wanted to sing a song to her. I can't even watch my engagement video because it's so embarrassing and I'm not kidding you. I will not watch it. I leave the room. I get like cold sweats. I pit out. It's horrible. And it's all about this song by Steve Green, I Cherish the Treasure of You. Anybody know Steve Green here? Oh, there's a few of you. It was like, I cherish the treasure, the treasure of you. Lifelong companion, I give myself to you. And at the end of the song, I said, I cherish the treasure, the treasure of you, Heidi. I yelled it that loud so that everybody could hear it. And I told my daughters this week, they hadn't heard that. They're like, if my boyfriend does that to me, I'll kill him. And I'm like, I would too. I would too. But love, passion does crazy things. Remember early in my College, I remember the person who had the biggest influence in my life, a speaker, and I didn't listen to preachers. I just, they were boring to me. It was like watching paint dry. 
Nobody ever connected to my heart, but this one guy, Ken Rudolph, did. Anybody know Ken Rudolph? And there were retreats I would go to. One all-nighter he spoke at uh, was 2 Samuel 23. He was talking about David's mighty men. And this is a story of Joshua Bashabeth was the first one of the three of the mighty men. And he killed 800 men in one encounter. And the next one was Eleazar. And he fought with David when they taunted the Philistines at Pastam and they came over. They fought back to back until their hands froze to their sword. And I was like, man, I want to be like that. And the last one was Shammah. And when everyone retreated in battle, Shammah stood his ground alone in the lentil field and, and routed the army. And then everybody came back to like plunder the goods after it was over. And it's like those three guys, their passion for David. And then they went back to the cave of Adullam. And David's like, oh, how I wish I had a drink of water from that venerated well next to, to the gate of Bethlehem. And they went through, busted through enemy lines, got him a glass of water, brought it back to David and he poured it out as a drink offering before God, like far be it from me to drink this of men who went at the risk of their own lives. And he was like, do you want to be like David's mighty men? I'm like, yeah, yes I do. And he's like, do you want to go into ministry? I'm like, no. <laughs> but then there was a part of me like, man, I want to serve God. And if I could do it like Ken Rudolph, another message he spoke was Psalm 18 and a vision of God answering prayer. And it was powerful. And I remember being so moved at teen leadership conference. And then I was a youth pastor, took my whole youth group over into Indianapolis. Thousands of kids were over there. And he spoke on Esther chapter four. A Mordecai went to Esther. He's like, you got to go to the king to save the Israelite people. And she's like, I can't go. He hasn't bid me to come into his, his courtroom. And if I go in there, he could have me killed. And he's like, if you don't go to him, God will raise up someone else in your place. And Ken Rudolph was like, do you want God to replace you and I'm like I'm competitive like no I would never want to be replaced by by God for somebody else because I wouldn't answer the call so she said if I go I'll perish and if I perish I perish I'm gonna go do this for such a time as this I remember that conference here I am with about 50 of the students I was the first one out to go as an altar call and I was bawling down at the front and I just rededicated my life to God for like the 10th time I think it's imp important that it isn't just students that go to camps or conferences that rededicate their lives. I think adults right here today, whether you're watching online or you're in this room, the importance of rededicating your life to God, reconsecrating yourself. God, I want to follow you with reckless abandon and passion. I have to keep doing that in my life. Amen. We have to keep doing this stuff in our lives and God gives us opportunities to fan into flame that passion inside of us that's grown cold. In fact, Jesus said in, I believe it's chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, he said, in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And I don't know if you can feel in your own heart, man, my love for Christ, my love for life, my love for my family, my love for my spouse, it's growing cold. Like the passion is draining out of us. God, can you fill me with that passion again? I can only hope I can be like a Ken Rudolph even today to maybe just inspire someone to, to have more zeal and more enthusiasm so that their faith is more demonstrative, that it, it spills out of them, that they're brimming with some sort of passion for the salvation that they have. Like some of my favorite passages in the Bible are the ones that inspire and stir my bloodstream to live for God with exuberance and spizzerinctum and passion. That's right, I said spizzerinctum. Like my, I think of all the verses like Psalm 51 where he's, David said, restore to me the passion or joy of my salvation. So you have salvation, but the joy of your salvation, where's that been lately? Are people sensing the joy in your salvation, the passion in your salvation? I think of Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. Like, if, if I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Christ. If I'm going to die, I'll die for Christ. But whether I live or die, it's for Christ. That's passion. 
And my, my life first in college was 2 Corinthians 5, 13 into 14, where it said, if I'm out of my mind, it's for the sake of God. If I'm of my right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels me because we're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. So all that live must live for Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Like the love of Christ compels me to be out of my mind for God. Paul even said, if I'm a fool, I'm a fool for Christ. This is the kind of guy that's like, man, I'm head over heels in love with Christ and it's gonna look like I'm out of my mind, but it's, it's because of what Christ has done in my life. And, and when I think of the word compelled in Acts 20, 22 to 24, it says, now the spirit compels me to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what's gonna happen to me there. I only know prison and hardships are gonna face me. Therefore, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may win the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. My life means nothing to me outside of the mission God has called me to achieve and to accomplish. That's what's the beating, throbbing heartbeat of my soul. Reminds me of Philippians 3 where he said, I consider everything rubbish compared to the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord because I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and in fellowship with his suffering, becoming like him in his death so that by all possible means I might have a resurrection myself from the dead inside. So I'm leaving what's behind, forgetting what's behind, straining for what's before. I press on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling to which Christ has called me heaven word in Christ Jesus. That's passion. He said to the Roman church in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, one of my favorite little verses, it says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That's hard to do. You can keep serving the Lord, but not with fervor anymore. And you're lacking in that zeal and that service becomes so mundane and rote and perfunctory. But people can tell when you're serving the Lord out of zeal and fervency. I mean, even Jesus was filled with zeal. We think of Jesus as sort of the gentle shepherd that has like a little lamb over his shoulders and little kids on his knee and, and he's sort of sitting there all gentle. Jesus, there was a time his passion oozed out in the temple when the temple was like a den of thieves and he needed to purge it and purify it and he turned tables and the disciples looked at him and they remembered it was said in Psalm 69.9, zeal for your father's house will consume you. Zeal for the house of God, for, for the church, for the people of God, for the kingdom of God consumed even Jesus. This is what I long for in my life. One thing I love about God is throughout the Bible, he didn't just call the perfect, he called the passionate. Passionate people that made mistakes, but when they made mistakes, they were repentant and they got back up and lived, gushing with some sort of joy and enthusiasm for God. So he even used people that made mistakes and fell on their face. Over and over, you can go into Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. You can look at Job. You can see Nehemiah. These people weren't perfect. Samson. You know, we have in the Old Testament, one of the judges, we've got uh, uh, Gideon, we've got David, we've got Solomon, we've got Jeremiah the weeping prophet, Ezekiel, all these people that he used, not perfect, but passionate. And God always was drawn to passionate hearts to befriend. Some of his best friends in the Bible were the ones that made the biggest mistakes, but had the, wielded the largest influence and wrote most of this book. If you think God writes you off because you make mistakes, he doesn't, as long as you have a heart that's repentant. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll dust us off, put us on our feet and say, get back in the game. Passion. And I wanna look at Peter today, one of the most passionate guys in the Bible, maybe only behind like Paul, and David, but he is right up there in the top three, the most passionate of Jesus' disciples. And Ryan talked on John, the disciple that Jesus loved last week, um, but I'm 
I'm telling you, Peter, James, and John, some of the three best friends he had, Peter was the one on which he built his church. In fact, in the Catholic church, I was over at the Vatican when I was on my sabbatical, and one of the first popes that they have, whether you agree with the whole schematics of the Catholic church, it's Peter. And then you have all of the popes that have come after him. I was like, Peter was the rock on which Christ built his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Peter. This guy was said to be the guy that was born with like a foot-shaped mouth because he always had his foot in his mouth. Always speaking before he was thinking. Always acting before he was thinking. His name actually was changed by Jesus from Simon, which means snub-nosed, to um, Peter or Cephas, which means rock. And just because this was, guy was the rock doesn't mean his life wasn't rocky. He had a rocky life. But the more and more he gave his life to Christ and made mistakes and got back up again, this guy became a rock for God. I mean, this is the guy who when Jesus called him on the Sea of Galilee, he was a fisherman. And he had all these employees and he wasn't catching fish. And, and then he caught fish once God said, cast your nets over here. And he brought in fish and he, he kind of fell before the Lord and said, I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. And God said, I want you to follow me. You used to be a fisher of fish. Now I'm going to make you an angler, a fisher of men. And he dropped everything, his nets, his livelihood. He left his hometown. He followed Christ for three years, left everything. John was the youngest disciple. Peter was the oldest disciple near 30 and he gave his life to Christ in his adulthood saying I'm leaving everything behind you have completely bewitched me heart and soul I'm smitten by you God I want to follow you and he left everything. This is the guy not long into ministry when Jesus was walking on water. We know that story that as he was walking on water, they said, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. And they were freaked out. And Peter yelled out, Lord, if that's you, call me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. And he jumped out of the boat, started walking on water and then took his eyes off Jesus. We know the story and started to sink because of doubt and because of a lack of faith. And a lot of times we rush to this part where he's sinking, but we forget there's actually only two people in all of history that have walked on water. It isn't just one, it's two. And sometimes to take the risk to, to put yourself out there is like, I might fail, but at least for a little while, I'm going to do something extraordinary for God until I fail. There's only one other guy other than Jesus that can say, I actually walked on water. Not for long, but I did. And it was awesome. I'll never forget it. No, I fell on my face like I normally do, but that doesn't keep me from jumping out of the boat. And if it's the Lord, I love that story in particular because it's one thing for Jesus to invite you to come out. It's another thing to have so much passion that it's like, if that's you, invite me to come out. And a lot of us are waiting for God to speak to us, inviting us into things. And sometimes when you're passionate, you're like, I'm not waiting for you to invite me. I'm going to ask you, God, if it's you, call me to come out. I'll come out of the boat. Passionate person isn't waiting for God to move or to speak. They're speaking and they're moving and saying, God, call me into the game. Put me in coach. I don't want to be on the sidelines. I mean, this is the same guy that when Jesus said, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities and I'm going to have to die. And Peter said, pull Jesus aside and rebuke him to his face and said, over my dead body, you're not going to die. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in your heart the things of God. I mean, can you imagine having such audacity and passion that you rebuke Jesus? I mean, he was dumb, but he was passionate. And I think Jesus was like, this guy speaks to me like a man speaks to his friend. He's not distant from me. He's not put off by me. He finds me approachable. And he comes to me and sometimes he does things he shouldn't do, but man, this guy has passion. And this was the same guy when they came and apprehended him in the garden of Gethsemane. All the soldiers came in and the high priest and his servant Peter unsheathed the sword and cut off the servant's ears. His name was Malchus. And Jesus was like, put your sword back in your scabbard. Do you think I came to start a rebellion? And he took the guy's ear and put it back on. I mean, this guy had passion. 
He was swinging the sword. He was rebuking Jesus. He was stepping out of the boat. It's like, man, I want more of that in my life. Everything seems to be so logical and, and so methodical. Sometimes you just need that heart that's a bit more like impulsive and even reckless as long as it's for Christ. I wanna give you permission in this composed world that honors composure that there's sometimes to lose your composure for your savior. And you might get into trouble, you might do something where you fail, but at least you'll fail while daring out of a love for Christ rather than playing it safe and keeping it to yourself for the rest of your life. Give God something to work with. Give him a sign of life, that there's some sort of pilot life, even though it's flickering, I wanna light that pilot light ablaze for my glory. I was um, thinking with, with Peter where he lived in Capernaum. I remember when I was in Israel a couple years ago, I took a picture of where Peter lived and they had a statue in Capernaum of Peter. I was like, this is the place where he walked around, where he grew up. And then that night you can see the awesome sunset. I walked down to the Sea of Galilee in this next picture and just took a picture of the Sea of Galilee. That's where all these stories take place. A lot of them in Capernaum. That was like uh, the home base. In fact, Jesus lived there with Peter and his, his mother-in-law and their family. And this is where they lived in this home right here. The next picture I have and uh, you couldn't see it, they had like plexiglass over it, but they had dug up um, the home where Peter lived, it was right next to the synagogue where his mother-in-law lived, where it was said in the scriptures. I was like, this is the hometown of Peter, and this is where Jesus lived because he wasn't accepted in his hometown of Nazareth, so he came over and lived here with Peter and the family in this place right here in Capernaum. In the next picture, we went out on the Sea of Galilee that night, and there was this guy fishing out there, and I was like, man, there's something about this picture, like this is what it would have looked like for Peter to be out fishing at night. He wouldn't have had the motor on the back of his boat like that guy, but he would have been out fishing. In fact, they had done an excavation and dug up in this next picture a first century boat that they would have fished in right here in Capernaum. And I remember our guide was like, this is one of the boats the disciples would have been in when Jesus called them. This could be one of the boats that Peter was in. And there was just something about being there in a first century boat that was buried in the mud and then recovered. I'm like, this is where it all took place. And where we join in the story in John 21 is a place where Jesus is meeting the disciples on the Sea of Galilee again after he had died and resurrected from the dead. They had gone back to fishing. And Peter was certainly feeling a lot of resignation, if not disqualification. Like, he doesn't want me. I'm a royal screw-up. I just denied him three times just a few days ago. And a few days later, he's like, I'm heading back out fishing to the old passion of mine, the first passion of mine. That one didn't work out with Jesus. In John chapter 21, it says, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Sounds like it's a full circle back to the first story where Peter encountered Jesus. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to the friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Well, he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some, you know, 12 feet away from where you threw it on that side of the boat. And they're like, oh my gosh, what does this guy know? But he's appealing to the first, first story three years ago where he called Peter. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was that? That's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon, I love that, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Now I wanna just, I wanna just linger there just for a second. Th this again 
after he had made an abysmal mistake, he had denied Christ three times, thought it was over for him. He, in this moment, he's, he's getting ready, fixing to do the same thing he did three years ago. As soon as he heard it said, it is the Lord, he puts on his cloak. Usually you're taking off clothes to get in the water, but he actually put on his clothes to jump in the water. I actually think he thought, as long as that's Jesus, I've done this before, I'm not gonna take my eyes off him this time. I'm gonna actually put all my clothes on because I'm not gonna get wet, I'm gonna walk right to Jesus. And so he gets his clothes on, he jumps in the water, and there wasn't no walking on water. He went right down and he started swimming toward Jesus. He was only 100 yards from the shore and he was like, you could stay in the boat, but why would you? It's Jesus, let's jump in and do something stupid. And so he jumps in. I mean, this is just my childhood. As soon as I heard certain things, I would do certain things. In fact, this last week was, was a perfect, like the sins of myself are visiting me to the second generation. I don't know the third generation, but Caleb, even though he's adopted from Ethiopia, he is uh, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone when it comes to idi idiocy. And we were at my, my brother-in-law and sister's house and they went running out and playing like kids do. And all of a sudden, my brother-in-law came back and took a couple pictures because my son grabbed um, a broken two by four and threw it through the window of a house. And uh, I did that all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and I was so angry because it happened to be uh, the only historical house in all of Apex. And, it, and the reason he did it, it wasn't his fault, he said, because my cousin said, it's abandoned, no one lives there. No one lives there, you can do anything you want. And so he's like, you can. And it happens to be historical glass in a historical house that's gonna cost us a lot of money. Actually, him a lot of money for the next seven years. It's kind of a layaway plan. He's gonna buy it over layaway. But that's what I was like. I remember when I was a kid, my dad just put up a, a hoop and a backboard and a net and it was all new. And right when he left, I climbed up the pole, shimmied up just because I wanted to feel what it was like to grab the rim and dunk it, just ripped it right off. We didn't even shoot one basket before I ripped it off. And I remember it fell right over my head, the net and everything, and it was on my shoulders. And Tim's like, you're dead meat. And I'm like, I know. And I went into my dad and he had the same reaction I had this last week to Caleb. Like, what were you thinking? I heard my parents say that all the time to me growing up. What were you thinking? And I'm like, I wasn't, I was feeling. I'm a feeler. I do what I feel, I go with my gut. You know, you're like, yeah. Now get your gut and your butt upstairs because I'm gonna take care of your gut and your butt at the same time. And, uh, and I remember it just, it, it went on. Even when I had a, a youth group, I remember doing a bonfire. This is just for you, Shaz, our youth pastors. It was a dumb idea, but had a bonfire. We were gonna have s'mores together. And so you know what you do when you want a bonfire with s'mores? You put in two huge tractor tires full of old motor oil, stack them on each other, then take the old barn boards that are all dried out and make a teepee, and then take all of the slats of lumber from our sawmill and do a teepee. It really is awesome to roast marshmallows by something you can't even stand next to unless you're 100 feet away. And so we start that thing and man, when the oil and the tires, don't ever do this, this is actually illegal. But, but it went up in the air, about 70 feet in the air and all the kids are backing up and then all of a sudden we heard fire trucks from three to four different places, Mineto and Hannibal and Fulton and Oswego, they were coming in. I'm like, man, there's somebody must have gotten an accident. Oh no, they were coming to our house because a neighbor a mile away thought that there was a barn fire or a house fire going on. And so they all pour in. And I'm like, <laughs> we're, no, it's just a youth group event. We're having s'mores next to the bonfire that we can't get next to. And I remember all the kids, they had backed up so far, it was like the wall way over there, they're here. It was still too hot. They hid in my dad's garden in the corn. I called them children of the corn. Just, what should we do? Oh, that would be awesome, let's just do it. That would be awesome, that would be cool. Fire trucks around, right? That was my life. It's the Lord, and at the, all at once, just jump in the water and then put your clothes on and think about things afterward. This is what Peter did, passion. Peter's passion for God, unparalleled. It goes on and says the other disciples followed in the boat like rational people would, towing the net full of fish. 
for they were not far off the shore, only about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat and dragged the net ashore. And it was full of large fish. How many? 153. I think it makes sense that they were counted for this story I'll I'll share in a second. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. I love I love that when Jesus comes back after all of them had abandoned him and forsaken him, save John, that instead of them getting a beat down, he made them breakfast. Instead of getting to the shore and Jesus being like, I've been uh, looking for you guys and we need to have a conversation. I just invested in you in three years and it took you three days after three years to go back to your old lifestyle. And, And where did you all go in my time of need? When I needed you, where did you all go? No, you don't hear all of that condemnation and shame and guilt being poured on them. Come on, have breakfast. I've been sitting on the shore. I invite you back into relationship with me. Most of the time when we disobey or rebel against God, don't you already feel like you feel enough guilt and condemnation inside? Aren't you glad for a God of grace? When you deserve a beat down, he gives you breakfast. That's grace. That's grace. It goes on, it says, Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. It was almost like communion. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I saw that, that number a third time and I'm like, wow, there's so many threes going on in Peter's life. Peter had a relationship with threes. I, I went through and there might be more, but these are the ones that I could remember. There was three times that um, he was with Jesus day in and day out for three years walking with him. There were three disciples that were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and he was part of that number. There was three denials of Christ knowing that he knew Jesus to this little girl that was asking, are you with him? Three days it took to fall away and go back to his old life. Only three days after three years. And then there was, this was the third encounter where Jesus appeared to them, continuing to pursue Peter three times. He made a pass at him. And then we'll look at the next thing, three invitations back into a love relationship with Jesus where he said, do you love me three times to make up for the three times where he denied him? It's so perfect. Three is a number of completion in the Bible, a powerful number of perfection or completion. And God just saying, I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not finished with you yet. But your love for me will grow and there'll be a day where you'll lay down your life for me and you won't even think about it. You said you would the first time, but you will from here on out. It goes on and it says this in verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, I think it's interesting that he didn't call him the name that he changed it to in this because I think he was appealing to the old Peter who followed God and said a lot of things, but the love didn't go very deep in his heart. The passion wasn't brimming inside of him. And he said, Peter or Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, well, take care of my sheep then. It's interesting, Simon, do you love me more than these? What what do you suppose that these are based on what we just read? How many fish were there? 153. And I can see Jesus looking at all the fish that were drug in that they had counted out. And he, he was like, Peter, do you love me more than these 153 fish? Because this was your passion before and you were a fisher of fish. I made you a fisher of men. And after three days, you've gone back by default to your initial passion. I wanna know, do you love me more than this passion in your life? Am I number one in your life? You've said it before but I'm asking you again, do you love me more than these? And if you do, then feed people. If you love me, then you'll love people. And it's like loving God for Pete's sake and loving Pete for God's sake. 
right? It's, that's the great commandment in a nutshell, loving God for Pete's sake and loving Pete for God's sake. And he's like, if you love me, you'll love my lambs. But you gotta, you gotta make a decision now because this is always gonna be like there for you. Just like it was Elisha. Elisha was called to follow Elijah and he had to take and butcher all his oxen and burn all of his plow equipment. And he burned it all to follow Elisha or you'll go back to it when the going gets tough. This happened throughout the Bible, not just with fish. I think it's figs, pigs, and fish is what I call it. You go back to, to Jonah where he sent him to Nineveh to reach these people and he was so bigoted and, and, and so angry that these people would find Christ. And then this sort of fig tree grew up with these, these uh, to cover up the sun and he was so hot and he wanted to die if you read in Jonah chapter four. And, and he loved and he was so happy when the fig tree grew up and around him and gave him foliage and shade. And the minute it withered away, he was angry and wanted to die. And God said to him, you're so concerned about the fig tree, why are you not concerned about all these people who need Christ in Nineveh, like 120,000 people, but you care so much about this. You're concerned is the, the word God used about this, but you're not concerned about this. Do you love that more than this? It's like, do you love me more than these or that or those or there? That's what we're asking. And then there's another time where there's story of the pigs and the guy comes from the graveyard of Gadara and he, he excommunicates all of the demons out of him, legion out of him and throws in the pigs and the pigs run off the cliff into the water. And it's another test. Do you love people more than pigs? And they're like, no, get out of here. We don't want you to be here. Rather than reveling in, this guy was bound up by an impure spirit and he's been freed. They're more about the pigs than they are the person. Do you love me more than these pigs and that fig tree and those fish? God's always been asking, do you love me more than that? It goes on in the text. It says, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I think it's uh, powerful. I was actually read through and I'm like, is this the only time that he actually asked the question, do you love me in the Bible? And it is. I don't think that's something that you would ask someone right off the bat. It's like when I was in a relationship with Heidi, I didn't say I love you for a long time because those words are really special and you don't want to say I love you on the first date and you're like, you don't even know me. How could you love me? It reminds me of Groundhog Day. You don't know me. Do you know Groundhog Day? Yeah. You don't know me. How, how could you love me? So he didn't ask this. He didn't ask, are you going to leave me too? And Peter was like, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Like I'd go somewhere else, but there's nowhere else to go. You, you have um, the only keys to the eternal life. And then he asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter was like, well, they say this and this and this. And he's like, who do you say that I am, Peter? Well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So he answered questions, but this is the first time he was ever asked, do you love me? In fact, it goes on. And we're gonna end here in the passage where Jesus said after, he said, you know I love you three times. He said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not wanna go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. See, Jesus had said, follow me up to that point over and over again to people. But this time, he wanted to establish love. Do you love me? And then will you follow me? I think there's a lot of people that ask Jesus to come into their life and they've given their lives to Christ and said, I wanna commit myself to you and they wanna follow Christ. They follow Christ in certain ways, like they go to church, they do the activities, they pray here and there, they tithe, they do all the dutiful things to show they're following God. But if they looked in their heart of hearts, the question, do you love me? Not will you follow me, but do you love me is the first and foremost question. 
And for those of us here that are going through the motions of outward actions that demonstrate sort of what we want to believe is an inward reality, God goes past the outward and the extrinsic to the intrinsic. Do you love me? Now follow me. Because you will not follow me any more than shallowly and superficially for the rest of your life and you'll be in the same hot water you were three days ago when you said you would die for me but you couldn't even stand up to a little girl. This has got to go deeper than just following me and just being behind me. Do you love me? I'll be honest with you, there have been times in the last nine months where even in leadership, I think there's something about being a leader and people following you that's a big deal, but I've asked the deeper question of, I don't want just staff members that follow me because I'm their boss and they have to because if they don't, I will dock their pay or cut them off or cause them to not have a job anymore. I want my staff and my family and my church to love me. I don't want just a bunch of people to come and follow I want people to love me. I want people not to just know God. I want them to love God because that's what's gonna cause you to make it through the hard times in your life so that the love of many don't grow cold when you get in the last days and you look and search deep in your heart of hearts and realize, I just went through the motions, but now that you mention it, it doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. It's not a great concern of my life. It isn't really on the forefront of my mind. It's always on the back burner. God's like, bring me to the front burner. And before you follow me, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? And in this passage, I could speak on a month of Sundays about this. This is one of the greatest like metaphors ever used. Peter, when you were younger, you were so impertinent and impulsive. Remember, you just did what you wanted to do all the time and you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But if you love me, if you love me, you're gonna someday, someone else is gonna dress you, stretch out your arms and you're gonna go where you don't wanna go. How many of you here love God enough to actually, whenever he says to do something, even when you don't want to do it, you'll go where you don't want to go because you love him. We'll follow Jesus as long as he's going where we happen to be going in the first place. And we'll follow Jesus as long as he's great taking our hand and us dragging him through what we've charted out and planned for the day. But this is a different love. This is, God, where are you going? I wanna go with you. And even if I don't wanna go there and that isn't the first thing on my mind and I don't get to dress myself and do what I wanna do, you get to dress me, you get to call me, you get to you know, lay out the ground rules and I'm the one that says, when you say jump, I say how high to you and I will go even where I don't in my flesh want to go as long as you're the one leading me. And this was the death that he would die to signify that uh, he was gonna be crucified someday. And Peter, in the second part of his life after this sort of love transaction, this passion transaction, that wasn't just like burned off real fast, but was like deep coals passion, not lighter fluid passion that he had before, but deep passion, deep coals. He would not even accept to be, when it came time to go to Rome and be imprisoned and be martyred for his faith, tradition has it that he wouldn't even be crucified right side up because he was not worthy of being crucified like Jesus. And so he decided, I want to be crucified upside down. And so he was crucified upside down and he went where he did not want to go because now it was about love. It wasn't about following rules. It wasn't about being a part of fantastic miracles and just following Jesus' move. It was like, God, I give myself to you and my passion and my love and my devotion is so deep for you I'll go wherever you want me to go even if I don't want to go there. I, I was thinking about Acts and Peter and John in particular since that's the last couple weeks in Acts chapter 4, 13. Their life was so radically changed. They were filled by God's spirit and what they couldn't have done even 50 days prior 50 days, a month and a half later Peter was the kind of guy that was out there preaching boldly and he really didn't care what the outcome or what the you know, consequences would be. He was like, here's my passion, here's the truth, I'm giving it all for God. And it said when the Sanhedrin, 
saw the passion, some translations have it boldness or courage of Peter and John. And they realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men. They marveled and took note that these men had been with Jesus. And it's like, man, I, no matter if you're feeling ordinary, you don't feel smart, when you have passion and other people see that passion, they can't help but marvel like what is in you that is driving you to be like that? See, every, there's so many people, especially in West Michigan, that go to church, right? Almost Christianity is just something you do in a social club just to kind of add that to your resume of like, I'm a well-rounded individual. We are in an area where everybody's into religion or spirituality or going to church, but the passion. Where's the passion? And a lot of people know things with a lot of head knowledge, but the heart knowledge is not there. It hasn't moved 18 inches from here to here. And I'm telling you today, this is the day for your salvation to be filled with passion for the joy of your salvation to be restored to you. And there are some of you here that know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your passion has leaked out over the years or you've chosen to follow God, but you've never looked him in the eye and had him ask you the question, do you love me with your deep heart? And that first love was brotherly love, phileo. Do you phileo me? Yes. Do you phileo me, brotherly love, where Philadelphia comes from, the city of brotherly love? The last one is, do you agape me? Do you love me with the love of God, this unconditional love, the deepest love? You know I do, Lord. And some of you here today just need to rededicate your life to the Lord. The best things that your kids could see from you is, I know dad always took us to church. I know mom always went to church. But something happened in December of 2020 where everything like got traction. And where it started to become more evident. It was coming out of the mouth and the face changed. And the passion was there. Where's your passion? How many of you got to say, God, I've followed you, but I have not consecrated myself in love to you, vowing to be with you and saying, God, wherever you want to go, even if I don't want to go there, I'll go where I don't want to go because I love you. So today, God, just like you did in my life in different times, calling me back, having a conversation with me, inspiring me with your word or a message, God, could you fill people with a desire to rededicate themselves to you and maybe move beyond knowledge and move beyond just going through the motions of Christian spiritual activities and would you embed in their lives and infuse them with a deep passion for you and a love for you, an agape love for you that cannot be broken. There's so many that their passion is drained out over the course of the month and we're so fatigued and and we feel so exasperated and exhausted, I pray that you would fill us up with a love for you as we head out into this world, into this mission field that you've called us to so that that can pour out of us, so that our cup can run over because of your goodness and mercy that have followed us all the days of our life. So I pray that as we leave today that you'd fill us with that passion, our faces, our hearts, our eyes, and may we be loved to this world that needs to see the reality of a transformation that only you can bring by your spirit. And I pray this, God, in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Happy December. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for watching online. You're dismissed.